Section six of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matea Bracic. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. Part two. It was at this time that Mary Wollstonecraft met Gilbert Imlay, an American who had fought with Lafayette and Washington. He was a man of some means, alert, active, and of good address. On account of his relationship with Lafayette, he stood well with the revolutionaries of Paris. He was stopping at the same hotel where Mary lodged, and very naturally, speaking the same language, they became acquainted. She allowed herself to be placed under his protection, and their simple friendship soon ripened into a warmer feeling. Love is largely a matter of propinquity. It was a time when all formal rights were in abeyance, and in England any marriage contract made in France and not sanctified by the clergy was not regarded as legal. Mary Wollstonecraft became Mrs. Mary Imlay and that she regarded herself as much the wife of Imlay as God and right could command, there is no doubt. In a few months the tempest and tumult subsided, so that they got away from Paris to Havre, where Imlay was interested in a shipping office. At Havre, their daughter Fanny was born. Imlay had made investments in timberlands in Norway, and was shipping lumber to France. Some of these ventures turned out well, and Imlay extended his investments on borrowed capital. The man was a nomad by nature, generous, extravagant, and kind, but he lacked the patience and application required to succeed as a businessman. He could not wait. He wanted quick returns. The wife had insight and intellect, and could follow a reason to its lair. Imlay skimmed the surface. Leaving his wife and babe at Havre, he went across to London. Mary once made a trip to Norway for him, with the power of attorney, to act as she thought best in his interests. In Norway she found that much of the land that Imlay had bought was worthless, being already stripped of its timber. However, she improved the time by writing letters for London papers, and these eventually found form in her book entitled Letters from Norway. Arriving at Havre, she found that Imlay had dismantled their home, and for a time she did not know his whereabouts. Later they met in London. When the time of separation came, however, she was sufficiently disillusioned to make the actual parting without pain. When Imlay saw she would no longer consent to be his wife, he proposed to provide for her, but she declined the offer, fearing it would give him some claim upon her and upon their child. And so Gilbert Imlay sailed away to America and out of the life of Mary Wollstonecraft. Exit Imlay. In London, the position of Mary Wollstonecraft was most trying. Penniless, deserted by Imlay, her husband, with a hungry babe at her breast, she was looked at askance by most of her old acquaintances. There were not wanting good folks who gathered their skirts about them, sneezed as she passed, and said, I told you so. Her brother Charles, a degenerate pettifogging barrister, with all his father's faults and none of his grandfather's virtues, from whom Mary had advanced money so that he could go to college, came to her in her dire extremity and preferred help. But it was on condition that she should give up her babe and allow him to place it in a foundling's home. This being done, the virtuous Charles would get Mary a position as weaver in a woollen mill, under an assumed name, and the past would be as if it never had been. 
this in the face of the assertion of pliny who said eighteen hundred years before that one of the things even god could not do was to obliterate the past and of omar's words nor all your tears shall blot a line of it the mental processes of charles are shown in his suggestion of a peasant plan whereby imlay could be lured back to england arrested and with the assistance of a bum bailiff marriage forced upon him his scheme was rejected by the obdurate mary who held that the very essence of marriage was freedom the tragic humour of the action of charles turns on his assumption that his sister was a fallen woman and must be saved from disgrace this opinion was shared by various other shady respectables who kept the matter secret by lifting a soprano wail of woe from the housetops declaring that mary had smirched their good names and those of their friends by her outrageous conduct these people also busied themselves in spreading a report that mary had gone into french ways it being strongly held then as now by the rank and file of burly english beef-eaters male and female that morality in france is an iridescent dream only that is not the exact expression they use hope sank in the heart of the lone woman and for a few weeks it appeared that suicide was the only way out as for parting with her child or with her brother charles and his kin mary would stand by her child it is related that on one occasion her sister everina came to visit her and mary made bold to minister to her babe in the beautiful maternal way sanctified by time before bottle babies became the vogue and nature was voted vulgar the sight proved too much for everina's nerves and she fainted first loudly calling for the camphor the family din eventually caused Mary to go a step further than she otherwise might, and she dropped the name Imlay and called herself plain Mary Wollstonecraft, thus glorifying the disgrace. This increased fortitude had come about by discovering that she could still work and earn enough money to live on by proofreading and translations, and it seemed that she had a head full of ideas. There, in her lonely lodgings at Blackfriars, in the third story back, she was writing The Rights of Woman, the book in places shows heat and haste and its fault is not that it leads people in the wrong direction but that it leads them too far in the right direction that is further than a sin-stained and hypocritical world can follow when men deserve the ideal it will be here if mankind were honest and unselfish then every proposition held out by mary wollstonecraft would hold true her book is a vindication in one sense of her own position for at the last all literature is a confession but mary wollstonecraft's book is also a plea for faith in the divinity that shapes humanity and leads us on amid the encircling gloom it is moreover a protest against the theological idea that woman is the instrument of the devil who tempted man to his ruin very frank is the entire expression all written by a tess of the d'urbervilles a pure woman whom fate had freed from the conventional and who wanting little and having nothing to lose not even a reputation was placed in a position where she could speak the truth parts of the book seem trite enough to us at this day since many of the things advocated have come about and we accept them as if they always were for instance there is an argument in favour of women being employed as school-teachers then there is the plea for public schools and for co-education william and mary first met in february seventeen hundred ninety six 
In this matter, dates are authentic, for Godwin kept a diary for 48 years, in which he set down his acts, gave the titles of books he read, and named the distinguished people he met. This diary is nearly as valuable as that of Samuel Pepys, save that, unfortunately, it does not record the inconsequential and amplify the irrelevant, for it is the seemingly trivial that pictures character. Godwin's diary forms a continuous history of literary and artistic London. William was not favourably impressed with Mary the first time they met each other. Tom Paine was present, and Godwin wanted to hear him talk about America, and instead Mary insisted upon talking about Paris, and Tom preferred to listen to her rather than to talk himself. The drawing-room was not big enough for this precious pair, says Godwin, and passes on to minor themes, not realising that destiny was waiting for him around the corner. The next time they met, William liked Mary better, for he did most of the talking, and she listened. When we are pleased with ourselves, we are pleased with others. She has wondrous eyes, and they welled with tears as we conversed. She surely has suffered, for her soul is all alive, wrote Godwin. The third time they met, she asked permission to quote from his book, Political Justice, in her own book, The Rights of Woman, upon which she was hard at work. They were getting quite well acquainted, and he was so impressed with her personality that he ceased to mention her in his diary. Godwin's book had placed him upon the topmost turret of contemporary literary fame. Since the publication of the work, he was fairly prosperous, although his temperament was that of gently procrastinating and gracious kind that buys peace with a faith in men and things. Mary had an eager, alert, and enthusiastic way of approaching things that grew on the easy-going Godwin. Her animation was contagious. The bold stand Mary had taken on the subject of marriage, her frankness and absolute honesty, her perfect willingness at all times to abide by the consequences of her mistakes, all pleased Godwin beyond words. He told Coleridge that she was the greatest woman in England, and Coleridge looked her over with a philosopher's eye and reported her favourably to Southey. In a letter to Cottle, Robert Southey says, of all the lions or literati I have seen here, Mary Imley's countenance is the best, infinitely the best. The only fault in it is an expression somewhat similar to what the Prince of Horn took display, an expression indicating superiority. Not haughtiness, not sarcasm in Mary Imley, but still it is unpleasant. Her eyes are light brown, and although the lid of one of them is affected by a little paralysis, they are the most meaning I ever saw. As for Godwin himself, he has large, noble eyes, and a nose, oh, a most abominable nose. Language is not vituperatious enough to describe the effect of its downward elongation. In mentioning the matter of Godwin's nose, it is perhaps well to remember that Southey merely gave a pretty good description of his own. In August 1796, Godwin borrowed fifty pounds from Thomas Wedgwood, son of Josiah Wedgwood of Etruria, which money was to tide Mary over a financial stress, and afford her the necessary leisure to complete the rights of woman. The experience that Mary Wollstonecraft had in the publishing business now enabled her to make favourable arrangements for the issue of her book. The radicalism of America and France had leavened England until there was quite a market for progressive literature. Twenty years later, the work would have been ignored in silence or censored out of existence, so zigzag is the path of progress. As it was, the work sold so that in six months from the time it was put on sale, Mary had received upwards of £200 in royalties. 
Recognition and success are hygienic. Mrs. Blood, an erstwhile friend, saw Mary about this time and wrote to an acquaintance, I declare she isn't getting handsome and knows it. She has well turned thirty and has a sprinkling of grey hair and a few wrinkles, but she is doing her best to retrieve her youth. Mary had now quit Blackfriars for better quarters near Hyde Park. Her health was fully restored, and she moved in her own old circle of writers and thinkers. At this time William and Mary were both well out of the kindergarten. He was forty, and she was thirty-seven. Several years before, William had issued a sort of proclamation to the public and a warning to women of the quest that bachelordom was his by choice, and that he was wedded to philosophy. Very young people are given to this habit of declaration, I intend never to wed, and it seems that older heads are just as absurd as young ones. It is well to refrain from mentioning what we intend to do, or intend not to do, since we are all sailing under sealed orders, and nothing is so apt to occur as the unexpected. Towards the last of the year 1796, William was introducing Mary as his wife, and congratulations were in order. To them, mutual love constituted marriage, and when love died, marriage was at an end. A sharp rebuke was printed about this time by Mary, evidently prompted by that pestiferous class of lawbreakers who do not recognise that the opposites of things are alike, and that there is a difference between those who rise above law and those who burst through it. Said Mary, freedom without a sense of responsibility is licence, and licence is a ship at sea without rudder or sail. That the careless, mentally slipshod, restless, and morally unsound should look upon her as one of them caused Mary more pain than the criticisms of the unco -gid. It was this persistent pointing out by the crowd, as well as regard for the unborn, that caused William and Mary to go quietly in the month of March, 1797, to St. Pancras Church and be married all according to the laws of England. Godwin wrote of the mating thus. The partiality we conceived for each other was in that mode which I have always considered as the purest and most refined quality of love. It grew with equal advances in the minds of each. It would have been impossible for the most minute observer to have said who was before and who was after. One sex did not take the priority which long-established custom had awarded it, nor the other overstep that delicacy which is so severely imposed. I am not conscious that either part can assume to have been the principal agent in the affair. When, in the course of things, the disclosure came, there was nothing, in a manner, for either party to disclose to the other. There was no period of throes and resolute explanation attendant on the tale. It was friendship melting into love. Mary was now happier than she had ever been before in her life. She wrote to a friend, My bark has at last glided out upon the smooth waters. Married to a man whom I respect, revere, and love, who understands my highest flights of fancy, and with whom complete companionship exists, my literary success assured, and the bugaboo of poverty at last removed, you can imagine how serene is my happiness. But this time of joy was to be short. She died three months later, September 10th, 1797, leaving behind her a baby girl eleven days old. This girl, grown to womanhood, was Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, wife of Percy Bysshe Shelley, and without whom the name of Shelley would be to us unknown. In writing of the mother who died in giving her birth, Mary Shelley says, 
Mary Wollstonecraft was one of those rare beings who appear once, perhaps in a generation, to gild humanity with a ray which no difference of opinion nor chance of circumstance can cloud. Her genius was undeniable. She had been bred in the hard school of adversity, and having experienced the sorrows entailed on the poor and oppressed, an earnest desire was kindled within her to diminish these sorrows. Her sound understanding, her intrepidity, her sensibility and eager sympathy stamped all her writings with force and truth and endowed them with a tender charm that enchants while it enlightens. Many years have passed since that beating heart has been laid in the cold, still grave, but no one who has ever seen her speaks of her without enthusiastic love and veneration. Was there discord among friends or relatives, she stood by the weaker party, and by her earnest appeals and kindliness awoke latent affection and healed all wounds. Open as day to melting charity, with a heart brimming with generous affection, yearning for sympathy, helpful, hopeful, and self-reliant, such was Mary Wollstonecraft. And here let us leave her. End of section 6